0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, John Emmerich. Today, I'm talking to Algie Hall, author of Four Ways to Beat the Market, a practical guide to stock screening strategies to help you pick winning shares. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Great to be here, John. T- tell us a little bit about your, I'll call it your your day job, your, your profession that actually led to this 10-year project, which then led to the book.
1: Yeah, no, sure. Um, so, um I'm I'm a financial journalist, and I, I suppose I'm a bit of a kind of um, outsider type financial journalist because um, it wasn't ever planned as a career. Um, I had um, I'd studied economics and politics at university, and then decided, as one does after doing that, that I wanted to become a children's book illustrator, and um, <laughs> I ended up with a part-time job um, uh, with, uh, with with a great man called Lawrence Lever. And I, he, he got me researching for his investment fund, which I was fascinated by, and also writing for a newsletter that he had. And um, then whilst working with him, I helped helped him set up a company called CityWire and just carried on writing as I'd been writing for him, researching stocks um, for CityWire. So um, and then I kind of, you know, I, I changed jobs. I went to work for somewhere called the Investors Chronicle. And I always had this great affinity with them. Um, looking at numbers to try and find a way into ideas, try and identify ideas. And at the Investors Chronicle, I started um, a stock screening column, which I um, wrote for about 10 years. And um, really, it, um, the performance of the screens, which I covered, it totally exceeded any expectation I had. I, I was you know, always a big fan of um, books like One Up on Wall, Sh- Wall Street by Jim O'Shaughnessy, and um, uh but I can I, never, I can never, never expected for the screens to do as well as they did. And it really just got me, you know, thinking I really just want to understand, you know, what they're harnessing, you know, why this approach can be so powerful. And really, you know, what value it has for, um, you know, the people I'm writing for, but investors in general, in terms of helping them make better decisions and pick better stocks.
0: So let's get uh, two definitions out of the way. Um well, it's really one definition: factors and anomalies. The the quantitative world calls these things factors. The EMH world, the academics, will call them anomalies, which I always found a funny term because oh, let's just <laughs> dismiss these. You know, they don't fit our. It shouldn't
1: happen. should <laughs>
0: happen. Uh, let's they don't fit our narrative about efficient markets. Um, um, I, I like to call them disconfirmations. But uh, how do you explain uh, in your column and? Um, what factors or anomalies are
1: well yeah i i mean i i suppose i maybe have um a bit more of a homely view on um you know on the on these kind of subjects um so i mean i i, th- I think i suppose um you know really you know w- what you're thinking thinking about when you're thinking about these um phenomenon which have um you know which appeared to exist in markets and ways to outperform is you're looking at market inefficiencies And the really interesting question for me is, you know, you know, why do they occur? What's the advantage that, um, you know, that you can get from, um, you know, from these inefficiencies? And um, I I suppose part of part of the thing I'm really interested in is that there always needs to be, or seems to be, kind of some kind of contradiction um, uh, there in terms of, um, you know, what what's going on. So, um, you know, something something like um, uh uh you know value value investing for example you have you know the um the contradiction that you're full of fear but at the time of maximum opportunity so um which creates these you know it, you know it, sometimes you can be right to be fearful but um oh you know on average you're you know there are oppor- opportunities there but um the the way, the way i've kind of always looked and understood factor research is um not in a very prescriptive way. So I think quite often when it's provi- um, the, the the research is used by um, quants um, and fa- or you know factor and, uh, funds, um, you're, you're kind of actually uh, looking at whatever's been tested and you're mimicking it. You're just you know you're using that as your guide. Was I suppose um, the way I'd explain my understanding and interest in factor investing is that it's kind of like a sign. It's an arrow pointing down a path or road but the road's really windy so if you just follow the arrow you're not going to stay on the road you're going to kind of go cross-country or whatever and you know the road may be bending around to somewhere you'd never expected so um for me and for the work i've done the value has always been in the fact that it's kind of it's not a prescriptive um thing for, you know the the evidence from factor investor investing but it's it's evidence that a certain approach to stocks and markets um, kind of improves your chances of outperforming,
0: right? So, and that's the the book turned out to be a little bit different than I thought when I just saw the title. This is you have your screens, and we're going to go into the four uh, screens, and but in each of them you have variables that you screen upon uh, within value, within quality, within momentum, and dividends, and some of them are cutoffs, if you will. Some of them are I I think I'll ask specifics later about ranking them, if you will. But then you're doing securities analysis, which is another thing I'll get into. So, but um, from the beginning, there were factors, uh, papers out there, academic papers that said value works, momentum works and stuff. You've uh, added layers to that analysis. Did you backtest it 10 years ago, your version, or did you just start doing it? number one. And number two, what was your methodology for, because I went through the appendices and it's great. You actually list the stocks that the screens kicked out and um, the numbers of stocks changes that's that's in the portfolio. Yeah. How, uh, how many, st- the FTSE is what, 100 stocks? That that was your benchmark? Yeah.
1: Well, um, the all share was for quite a few of them. And uh, one was a 350. 350. So, um,
0: yeah, how so, many, yeah. How many did you end up with? And just general things like that, I'd be fascinated to learn about.
1: Well, well, I mean, the the, the approach. I, I guess where I started was um, probably trying to think about the ty- the characteristics of a stock which would be held by an individual who was. Um, who, who, who is trying to implement one of these strategies. So it wasn't, I wasn't looking to, you know, the um, whilst all the factor research, the empirical stuff is really fascinating. I wasn't looking to that as a guide. I was thinking far more in you know, a far, well, homely was the word I used, this kind of far more homely way of, you know, if I was holding, you know, a stock, which kind of exemplified, you know, a value situation or a um, more quality situation, what kind of things would I really want to, you know, want to see? What would I be expecting to see? Um, and then uh, it was a case really with building these screens of, um, you know, understanding, you know, what factors were supporting each other, I suppose, and what were, and what factors, or, you know, so I'm talking factors, I mean, what um, kind of individual criteria, criterion, um, you know, were really valuable in the process and then whittling it down because the, the danger with them, um, uh, screening is that you just you know you put too much stuff in and you and you and it end up ends up being meaningless you get no results um, but I mean quite a few of the screens do have quite a few criteria but um because because I was also writing with this idea that these are stocks which you want to re, um, research at the end part of the value is in keeping uh, the output to a relatively small number 100%. so you can actually concentrate and do the work
0: yeah and um, yeah, I, I agree. I, I was a securities analyst in public mutual funds and hedge funds for for almost twenty years. And in the U.S., when I started, there were eight thousand stocks, you know, publicly traded in the U.S. to choose from. How do you? You? you I imagined I, this is how I came to my process. Mike, I walk in at Monday morning at seven a.m. What do I do? How do we even start? You know, like because I was a fundamental analyst, I was reading the SEC filings the annual reports and queues and building Excel models I mean one company analysis just to get started would take a week you know how do you uh, screen it down and that's what this makes this so powerful to me I mean
1: and I, I think probably um, most people I speak to would say it's kind of a day before you even really know whether you you know whether there's anything even vaguely there so I mean so yeah so it's kind of best to start with a you know a very promising pool of
0: ideas hundred percent and and um how many stocks would be in, and this was, it was this a January one to December 31 project? No, uh, be- because it was for a column. It was, um, it, I, I was doing, I
1: was doing these uh, screens throughout the year. Now, if you so these are, these are kind of um, what I, what I ended up doing was choosing four screens, which come kind of like really exemplify uh, four different, you know, very proven approaches. Uh, for the book. But um, there were kind of guru screens and things like that I was doing, which actually taught me a lot also. Um, but uh, so um, they... they any, anyway, because we, we we were running them in the magazine, they all have different start dates. And then um, I left the magazine in uh late uh 2021 i think it was oh no i started writing the book in late 2021 i left the magazine in early 22. so um uh the book just covers a 10 a 10 year period for each from when they started
0: okay and i should have introduced a a fact from the beginning as a hook to listeners that the the outperformance of each of the four strategies is absolutely stunning and um and 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 it's worth mentioning that because it'll people see well how how do you do it you know um, yeah yeah
1: I mean no, I mean the, the the outperform I mean I, I I think it's I mean because it because it's not scientific at all because you've got a screen a year and the 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 idea is you rotate into I mean this isn't the idea for if you're actually using them but the, the way the performance figures are done is you rotate into the new batch of stocks each time the screen is. Um, a new screen comes out, okay. so that's where the performance record comes from. Whereas, in actual fact, obviously, if you you do your research and take a position, then you don't want to just be saying after a year I'm out. It's um so it's, it's kind of something of an artifact, a journalistic artifice to kind of you know have it that we just reshuffle completely
0: Understood. after a year. Yeah.
1: But um, uh yeah. So um, it, it's um, but the 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 performance, I think probably you know. It does seem to resemble what you would expect in terms of the studies into when certain styles outperform and don't and the kind of drawdowns you would expect from them. But also the level of outperformance, um, I think partly is um, a reflection of the fact that the UK market, which these screens were conducted on, isn't as bad as most people think because most people see the main index and um, it's dominated by some very large, but, you know, fairly long in the tooth you know ex-growth companies um which just you know um you know kind of struggling to keep their place in their markets um and so actually you have quite a you know a a rich um you know uh stock picking landscape beneath that so I, i think you know partly um the level of outperformance, um, you know, reflects the fact that there's actually there are actually you know good stocks quoted in the UK, despite the fact that I think a lot of people <laughs> look at, no. look at the UK and they see the performance dictated by these very large, heavily weighted companies. But I mean, saying that the performance is you know very considerable, so it's not just that. It's um, right. you know, it's, you know, you're you're I'm, I'm you know I feel fairly confident in you know in, in you know saying these screens have really latched on to the meat behind these kind of you know these factors and that you know people have observed
0: yeah and two two points you brought up to to clarify one is that this was done in the UK but the underlying factors the academic work does apply to other countries but your your work was done in the UK and a point that joe wiggins we talked about uh, in the preamble uh, mentioned to me was cause he's allocating, he's like, how do you pick an active fund manager? There's you know, 90% of them in the U S don't outperform, don't add value. He did mention that a- active managers in the UK tend to, uh, do better on average than what you see in the U S. And it was kind of because of the, the structural dynamics of your, uh, market, the, the way you exactly described it. Um, the, the richness of the opportunities, um, so and then lastly, because it's interesting, you said in your introduction you, you you were a securities analyst, and this is again not a, a black box because uh, you can buy a value factor ETF in the U.S. or uh, momentum. Uh, there are firms like DFA that were built upon trying to build factors, but at the end of the day, you'll have a list and you'll go through the SEC filing or sorry, our SEC your uh, annual reporting filings and um, also do the, the the qualitative analysis to say. Uh, you know, for instance, in a, in a, in the quality screen, high return on capital, what, why will it continue to work? You know, uh, you do do fit a fit a fair bit of that. I understand.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. No, no. I mean, I, I am um... sorry, John, I, I just breaking off for a second. that was a car alarm going off. You probably heard it.
0: It's very faint. I'll fix
1: it. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, You're okay. okay. I'll, I'll answer. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah. No. When, when, um, I was writing the book really, I mean, the key to it is um, based on getting a real understanding of why um, certain approaches to investing work, Work. so it's not um, really about the numbers um, so much at all as kind of about the ideas which underlie these strategies and the ideas about how you can identify stocks which really um, fit with the strategies. And um, one of the key reasons for that is because um, the investor audience that I've, you know, always focused on is um, an audience which wants to buy individual stocks. And I think one of the most important things with owning stocks is to, you know, really understand them, so that when you do get whacked, and also the same is true of a strategy, when your strategy gets whacked and is underperforming, and you feel miserable and you feel like oh, I just want to give up, you've actually got faith that No, okay. This is, you know, this is what happens. This should, this is, you know, this is, you know, why I'm, you know, this is kind of almost the cost um, of my strategy outperforming. The fact that I have to suffer periods of underperformance and sometimes, you know, the stocks I pick won't work. But if I carry on applying what I understand and what I have faith in, I, you know, I, I should come out, you know, better than I would otherwise. And it's, you know, it's the emotional torment of investing, really. That. people have to deal with and i think um i you know for some people you can just say okay i'm just going to um you know use a quant strategy and that's gonna you know i'm just gonna put my faith just in that process and keep on applying applying it and that's where i'm gonna overcome this but i think actually for most people that's harder than actually really just knowing you know the individual stocks that you're buying and holding and why you're and why you've got them so um so yeah i mean the book is. i think it it kind of possibly i mean this is a terrible thing for a book to um do to itself but i think the book is you know possibly sounds more niche than it actually is because (laughs) because in order to actually you know understand these strategies and um you know how to apply them to individual stocks you have to have a very broad understanding of you know what investment's actually about
0: right but i I agree with you i'm um i think about the the strengths of passive versus active and how and I understand all the academic theory and I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, a book myself to kind of just because I went to business school, I studied finance and um, uh, I went back and looked at all the academic work of coming you know, from uh, modern portfolio theory to beta and capital asset pricing model all the way to EMH. And, and they try to explain why active investors uh, don't succeed. And one of my conclusions is. It's because they listen to you. It's because they follow. Because <laughs> they're still trying to use beta, which was declared dead in 1992. Because they're defining risk as short-term volatility when, and an at-risk uh, asset class like equities, it should be irrelevant. Like you should. And but um, we're we're emotional animals, and we'll get into the behavioral side of of these things. Because I'm really interested to learn. Like, and you have the sections in every chapter, which is great. Uh, why does it work? Okay. We see it, but why? And, uh, but anyway, to go into your point, so today with, with the market going up and down and causing your stomach to hurt as an investor, you don't know what you own, but if you're, if you own McKesson or Amerisource Bergen, and these are not recommendations they're just throwing out big cap, high quality names that pay a dividend, you're like, well, okay, their business is still the same business. And, on the thirtieth of the of the quarter, I'm going to get a dividend, no matter what, and and I'll go back to my day job and just let that um, compound. Uh, yeah,
1: and 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 also you have to know what you feel comfortable with. I 100%. mean, like, yeah, it's, exactly. It's like you know, it's, everyone's different, and yeah. it's like you know, it's, there's not a one size fits all fits all answer. No, so, yeah.
0: So I'll let, I'll, right great. before we get into the specifics of the screen, I'll throw out kind of three questions at once and let you you have a chapter why stock screening works so why does it work and when you get into this very specific screens you have a uh, core versus non-core if you could explain that and then third i think you addressed this uh it, that you they're based they're they're equally weighted that the attempts to monkey with them and place higher criteria tends to backfire on you so why does stock screening work Explain core versus non-core and um, how you put them into practice, you know, kind of equal weighting versus uh, trying to, you know, say that, well, this one's more important than the other. That'd be great.
1: Yeah, no, sure. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I, I suppose, yeah, why it works is, um, I mean, this is like really important key to the value of the book, I suppose, because um, um, I I think one of the the quotes I use um, in the book, which is attributed to... Albert Einstein is that everything should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. But um, I, 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 you know, when when you're trying to pick stocks, you're dealing with um, information which is confusing, complex, and contradictory, and it's you know the exact recipe for making poor choices because you know we it's so hard to wait. We're kind of you know we're looking with you know investing is a probability-based discipline. But you know that means you have to wait what's actually important in you you know to your process and to your decisions um, and it's an invest is so difficult and you know it's like at the moment we have you know it's all about interest rates and inflation and you know that's that's you know it's, if, whatever you look at you know that's going to be your preoccupation.
0: That's the dominant kind of headline thing. right now yeah exactly okay.
1: yeah. and it's whatever whatever's dom- the dominant headline the is, is going yeah. yeah and and then equally if you have a you know if you have you know story stocks anything with an element of story stock to it you're going to be swayed by it and it could be a story which is you know the negative story as well as a positive story so um what what screening does which i think is the real value and it's um and, and you know it's got this kind of um process has got more publicity recently with the book um called noise which was um written by daniel kahneman and et al is um it um forces you to just to look at what's actually really valuable to a process you know what are these kind of key characteristics which are going to help you find a stock which you know is maybe going to outperform because it's a value stock or because it's a dividend stock or because it's um you know quality whatever so you just have to really you know distill down the key elements and then create your process around them and just doing that is you know is going to put you in such a much better place not only to find promising ideas but then to make sense of them afterwards because you've already decided you know what you're looking for and then so you're you know you're essentially testing whether you know those signals you've got are good or not and you know sometimes you'll you'll look at one of the signals you get and you go oh no that's absolutely terrible you know the the profits from this company aren't real or you know whatever it is so I think um, with um, with stock screen, it's that process of simplifying, which is you know really you know simplifying to what's you know what is valuable, which is really why it's a real winner for investors. Um, so then the other yeah core versus non-core. This is you know I, I suppose it's um, this question of what your core criteria and your non-core criteria kind of um, just extends this idea of um, you know simplification further because. Um, you know, there you you can you can add a lot to a screen, and it can be very helpful. But also, it can actually take you away from your quarry because you can start to become too specific, and um, you know, you can just start to identify things which um, uh, randomly fit the brief, rather than things which actually you know embody what you're looking for. So with my screens, I always have um, core criteria, which I'm not going to change. I kind of think, you know, that's too important. Or if I do change them, I will replace them with something which is kind of, you know, which does a better job, hopefully, you know, sometimes circumstances change. So you need to, you know, change criteria in, in screens. But um, the non-core criteria, uh, uh, criteria where if um, a screen isn't throwing out many ideas, you know, the, I, I, I'll, I'll just say, well, okay. So let's just not make it pass all of these tests. You know, if it's going to, if it's passing kind of four out of these six, you know, non-core tests, probably we're getting close to what we're looking for. It's like, you know, we, you don't need to be precious with screens, and um, you know, they you know, you don't, you know, that even goes to the extent of, you know, you, you, you know, switching around, you know, what what kind of, um, you know, measures you use for something like quality, you know, um. And then finally, you're asking about the equal weighting. And again, this is, you know, because simplicity for me is, you know, always going to trump anything else. And I think there's there is evidence that, you know, an equal weighted approach, you know, tends to outperform. But, um, you know, it's just more from the practical point of view that, you know, do you want to be really making a judgment if you've got kind of, you know, two great stocks? You know, do you want to then be saying, you know, this one is greater than the other one? Because, I, you know, it's kind of, often it's not, you know, it's not knowable. Um, and there's, um, there, there's a study that from uh, back in the 70s, I think, which um, I quote in the book by um, uh, some called Robin Downs, and um, he did, and it, it, was, it was, it was, it was, the study. The conclusions of the study were so surprising at the time that he really struggled to get it published. But what he did, he, um. He did multiple he multiple regressions on um you know a whole, a whole load of things so he could produce models based on the multiple regressions, and then he um he put them against models which kind of just equally weighted all of their inputs, and I mean this isn't about portfolio construction, this is about prediction, and um, what he found was that the equal weighted models generally did a lot better than um, than these like really sophisticated models based on multi- multiple regression. And the, and the, there have been kind of similar studies, you know, since then, which kind of seem to confirm this idea that, you know, if we try and get too clever with things, we actually miss the point. It's kind of like, you know, it's the, it's the, you know th- there's only so much we can figure out. You know, the future is totally unpredictable. You know, we're dealing with so much complexity. Just, you know, just focus on, you know, what you can identify as valuable and um it's going to do you a lot more good than if you're if you try and get you know really clever with it because you're you know if you start getting really clever with it you may actually end up focusing on the wrong things or giving too much weight to them rather than focusing on the you know things which will really help you
0: yeah and you used the word probability earlier which i love because i like to say in this business we're 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 odds makers you know and you do you do the little things every day just to improve your odds that over the long term you'll add value you know
1: yeah absolutely and, and also, that it's, it's one of the things which makes it so hard as well because little things are very hard to kind of notice and it's hard to notice the significance of them so um often it can feel like you know doing something you know which um isn't a grand gesture isn't really adding any value but yeah it's yeah as, as exactly as you say i think it's kind of about adding all like lots of little things together is what you know create something really special
0: and I, I love um i think it's the simplicity of the joel greenblatt model that you refer to in the book one of my favorites the magic formula that makes it so elegant you you rank the value criteria you rank the uh return on uh excuse me the valuation and the quality criteria and then you re-rank them and that's it and there's your top there's your top 30 and it's done you know quite well through the years
1: yeah uh, so the, yeah actually i found it interesting when i was because i used to do that green black screen for the column then i did a version which is based on cash so um a free cash flow yield instead of an earnings yield and uh, um, cash from invested capital um f- uh, for the quality uh, criteria and it actually did way better than the um original green black sc- uh, screen and i think I, I actually think that speaks a lot to just how um Accounting treatments have um, made earnings kind of actually uh, really quite a treacherous f- figure to use in screens sometimes.
0: Yeah, earnings. And that's my next question is about Chapter 7 and just proving again that you're doing fundamental analysis on intangible assets. Um, because That's the the one difference I have with – it isn't just – it's the earnings issue. And in that case, it's also the definition of capital. If you use the right-hand side, as I call it, of the balance sheet, just add up capital – and uh, equity and debt you have a capital number to use a lot of people like to come at it from the other side right which is add up individual assets and subtract certain certain liabilities and i think greenblatt kind of historically had ignored intangibles but you can't ignore them anymore and i had the pleasure we already talked about joe wiggins of I'm talking to another one of your countrymen, Jonathan Haskell, co-author of "Capitalism Without Capital: The Rise of the Intangible Economy." And what we talked a lot about was how the rise of the intangible economy was wreaking havoc on his world, the the economics world, the um, the you know central bank policy, and and we're experiencing it right now. Like we're raising rates like crazy, and nothing's happening. He's not killing anything. It's certainly not killing corporate America because you can't borrow against intangible assets, and so they just have massive amounts of cash and what you do with the short-term rate has uh, no impact on that. But reading your book, it reminds me again that how you measure things like return on capital um, is greatly impacted uh, by intangibles. If you want to talk a little bit about why you gave it a whole chapter.
1: Yeah, no, I I mean, I, I, um, I, I, I wrote a uh, long article in I think 2020 about it, which I, you know, I'd been, You know, I'd been aware of um, how, you know, that it has a lot of influence on, um, uh, you know, on on the way investors see, um, you know, the world through financials. But it was only in writing that that I kind of really kind of internalized, I suppose. And um, no, I mean, it's just it's incredible. It's one of these great questions of the day for investors and economists, because there's so much which we don't see because it doesn't go through accounts in the way that, it should do. So, I mean, yeah. So if, if, if you have, I mean, just, you know, to the, you know, the, the basics of it, if, if you are investing in, in, in an, an intangible or, you know, in most intangibles, so something like building your brand or, um you know, even doing research and development on, you know, the next great wonder drug, let's say, um it's all a cost. So it's not you're not creating an asset which you then set against the revenues that you get from that investment over the long term. You're taking it all up front, which means that um, a lot of companies have tremendously depressed um, levels of profitability when they're growing by investing in intangibles. And it's a completely, you know, false picture because, um, you you know, you'll see see a a company which, you know, is far more profitable if you were to treat the intangibles the same way you treat tangibles. Um, But it will look less profitable than another company. And also when that company stops growing and stops investing, Suddenly, they'll enter a period of, um, you know, accounting accounting growth. If you like, you know, the earnings will take off because they're no longer they no longer have that cost. They've, you know, they've created a huge asset which they should be depreciating. If you know, if there's any sense in the numbers, but um, but then they're, they're not. They've just been making losses for years, and suddenly they're wildly profitable. And it's like and actually, you know, and the profits are growing, but in actual fact, they've you know stopped investing. They're not, you know, they've taken their foot off the gas rather than keeping it on it and then also none of it's on the balance sheet so um, yeah they look you know when they do become profitable they look wildly profitable from all those you know classic um, quality measures Um, so I mean you know so it's a real problem and thing for something for all investors to think about and um, when it comes to stock screening the problem you have is that um, you can you know try and be clever in terms of the um, metrics you use but uh, there aren't standard ways for adjusting um the balance sheet so when you know when you're looking for quality you know you still have the, you know the the the, the kind of holistic quality ratios which compare profit to um uh, to uh, to the capital you know whatever measure of capital you want you're um you know you're a bit stuck because even if you get use cash um against whatever capital measure you have you still, you still got, you know, the ca- your measure of capital will be wrong because it won't um, take account of intangibles.
0: Right. So, so your free cash flow yield uh, on the quality screen addresses the income side, but you still have the capital side to kind of think about. Yeah, you have a balance sheet which, um, actually,
1: you know, won't um won't help you. But obviously, you know, it kind of, it, you know, it. It depends on what your company you're looking at. you can still use these measures quite well, I think, but you know in terms of the, those kind of quality measures but um it's just some you know some companies are going to look very weird
0: yeah and <laughs> and uh what one more accounting question what impact have you seen any studies done um, in in the u s minor is in the u s in corporate america it's it's big it, the phenomenon of uh, swapping out the tradition of paying dividends and using share repurchases is not quite as prevalent in, say, European stocks, where they still pay? uh, No. What do you think?
1: Well, um, no, yeah, in in Europe, it's still very much a dividend culture. Um, I mean, I I think, you know, there are pros and cons. Um, One of the great things about using buybacks is um, that you're not beholden on to them. So a, a lot of companies in the UK right. have got into real trouble because they, you know, they're known as income payers trying to hold up to that
0: dividend when they really shouldn't exactly, be paying it. Yeah,
1: exactly. They need to, they need to take care of their balance sheet often, you know, they need to just do something else. So, you know, they, they're not the business they once were and they need to adjust to it, but they carry on paying out, you know, the dividend and building up debt. And then they, you know, everything goes wrong. Um, so and 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 also there's in in the UK I think especially and I think this is less so in the US. Um, people kind of don't understand that um, paying returning capital is you know capital allocation, you know, as any other you know it, just a normal capital allocation decision. It's part of a far bigger. You know, broader sweep. So it's like, you know, if 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 you don't have anything to invest in, then you pay it out as a dividend or you buy back shares. You know, this is like this is like what's left. You know, the the option at the you know, once all all other options are exhausted, you know, and deemed no good, you um you return capital. But um there is a real fetishization of dividends in the UK that you know in in terms of you know we have this huge um income fund sector where the rule is. You, um you know you you have to have your fund with a basket of stocks which um, have has a dividend yield which beats the, the benchmark you know whatever um index you're benchmarking against which makes in investment terms its make makes no sense it's just like you know this is like just this on its own you know you can work dividends into a strategy and they can be really you know they can be a really good input into a strategy but not based on you know the income it's just that's you know money that is kind of, you know when, when it comes back to you i mean like you know this is the irony is you know the money comes back to you and the share price falls by that amount you know x dividend and you get the drop and it's like you know this is like totally zero sum but um you know people go mad for this idea that you're going to get a you know something you know your brokerage account is going to get some cash in it and it's like well it's you know, it's um that doesn't mean anything on its own but um but so yeah so um Anyway, so, yeah, the, using buybacks gets, gets around that. But, I mean, I, I think also, you know, you probably shouldn't be holding a stock if it's overvalued, um, if you think it's overvalued. But normally, you know, often buybacks happen when, you know, stocks um, with hindsight prove to be overvalued. And also one of the fascinating things, which I didn't know about till um, recently when I started writing more about um, U.S. stocks, is the prevalence to which... Um, uh, um, buybacks are used to undo the dilution from share issuance which again is a total zero-sum game and it's just like you know this is absolutely mad and and, it, and to the extent I think is Salesforce's, um uh that I was the company I was writing up and in in their earnings call they're talking about you know using buybacks to stop the dilution and it's like this is what I couldn't as, as, as someone who hasn't you know is you know is in the market which is obsessed with dividends for so long, coming to the and looking at the market which is you know which uses far more buybacks. You know this has come like completely out there for me, and um, yeah anyway. Yeah, it's, the, uh, funny things which happen. <laughs>
0: the, the last uh, the last time we had kind of a big tech boom in the in the late 90s, uh, security analysts would write up that um, the options pr- plans which were huge you know in Silicon Valley yeah. didn't cost anything because we were buying back the shares. So <laughs> I'm like, you're like you, could do, you could do other things with that capital, you know.
1: <laughs> well, of course, because, of course, you know, free cash flow, when, you know, it is, it is kind of like put in after um, you calculate, well, my, for most calculations of free cash flow, obviously, you know, everyone decides how they do it themselves. But for most, it comes, you know, it comes after you've calculated the free cash flow figure. So in terms of presentation, it's a free ride. And everyone looks at the adjusted earnings figures. So, I mean, but I mean, yeah. In terms of substance, it's like nonsense. Yeah. That's
0: absurd. <laughs> um, chapter nine is a great lead into the first screen quality and a confirmation bias alert to listeners. Mm-hmm. The discussion about the spread between return on capital and cost of capital um, as a fundamental analysis to me one of the most important in in all of investing. And, uh, one of my favorite books was. Uh, quest for value by stern stewart who created the concept of economic value added and you use the term NOPAT, pat uh, net operating profit after tax in the book and and it was so informative because for so many reasons one of them was you learned that there was a correlation direct and positive between your just say return on equity and the growth rate that a company could fund internally like i, I again going back to the my my early days as a security analyst the number of times Uh, someone, a CFO would sit across from me at a conference and say, yeah, we're going to grow earnings 20% a year. And I said, well, you have a, you have a 9% return on equity. Like, uh, yes, if (laughs) you do it, (laughs) you can't, you can't, if you have all this cash from a recent offering or debt or of equity or debt of debt or equity. Yeah, sure you can, but organically, and what I'm going to pay for in terms of a multiple is limited by your return on uh, capital, but clarify in the title, growth rates and momentum uh, because this chapter is before we get into the screens, growth rates in what and and momentum in what. But I just I just can't <clears throat> praise that chapter enough. Just to throw that oh, out there. Oh, thank you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, but yeah, I mean, in terms of growth rate, it, it, it's um, I mean, yeah, the, I think the main point it makes about growth is that um. I, God, you know what? I have to refresh my mind, my mind of that chapter almost. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's, but it's, uh, yeah. The, I mean, the, the main the main point. I mean, the point I always, you know, try and make about growth is that it's not always good. It's come kind of like, out, you know, it's one of those things. It's behavioural, isn't it? It's can kind of, We we think, you know, the word growth is a great word. It's like it's, you know, it sounds. Who couldn't want growth? Until yeah, you you can, you know, until it's that kind of um, totemic um, transform transformating uh, transformative acquisition which you know three years down the line it's massive write downs from a new ceo and like, oh yeah no, that was another,
0: another another uh crutch in the late 90s was making an acquisition kind of in the second quarter every year and uh, a company that's growing at gdp and showing oh we're growing 20 percent a year therefore we deserve a 20 a percent pe multiple and and I'm just like, who are you talking to? But unfortunately, there wasn't an audience for that uh, nonsense back in the day. Let's jump into the screens. Uh, Quality. Um, Again, you clarified up front that there are factor funds that the academics that talk about quality. Some use return on capital. Some strictly margins. You talk about asset turnover, and I I love return on capital because it does feel like long term. It's all encompassing. Whereas, you know, just using margins misses some businesses that have tremendous asset turns like a drug distributor i mentioned earlier might have a low single digit operating margin but its returns on capital are huge because it turns it turns its um its assets so its inventory so rapidly and i went back and looked uh just for personal interest at amazon kind of before the web services kind of confused the model when it was just internet retail and the thing that the including me I think the ma- the majority of the world missed who didn't buy into it because they just saw low or zero or negative operating profits was if you went, and I think you do the same thing. I go to the cash flow statement first. That's the first thing I look at, and then I work oh, back- yeah, backwards, yeah, yeah. you know? And so even when they were making no uh, accounting earnings, they were generating gobs of cash because they turned their inventory every 45 days and paid their vendors every 90 days. Brutal for the vendors, but for Amazon, and that's why it's some analysts who understood said, if they need to grow twenty, if they grow twenty percent a year. Forget about earnings. You know, they're just generating gobs and gobs of uh, of cash. But walk through some of um, how you think about quality in the way you do it.
1: Yeah, no, sure. So the screen. I mean, I. The, so I mean, the I I, I think there is a reason people look to margins first, which is that it's a far more reliable actual guide to quality because i mean if you if you have amazing asset turn um and very low margins it can be the basis of an, a brilliant business like you know like yeah like amazon like costco uh, and lots of people overlook it which is a great reason to look for it um but you off, you can also have um you know the the company which has low margins because it's just very vulnerable and so and I, so uh, th- which is one of the reasons why the screen uses as its way in and I, and I say in the book you know you don't you know you you can you can set this up so it's far more attuned to asset turn if you want but the way you know i've done it as a, a screen over the 10 years is far more attuned to the, the kind of um quality that will produce high margins and um and so it's just like it makes it less you know is you're, you're, you tend to find Companies which are less vulnerable to, um, you know, the cycle or um, outside factors, because um, if you if you have a high margin, you've got something which someone wants to buy. It's basically, you know, that that's kind of, you know, that that's the way I kind of tend to say, You know, it's something which is special. So it's kind of, you know, so it's a sign of specialness. So whereas asset turn is kind of, if it's if it's good asset turn, it's a sign of a special business model. And, and and you may have something which people you know you'll have something which people want want, want to buy, but it's kind of like, you know it's it's, it's from an, from a different way. So um, the the core ones and that one are operating margin and also another another measure which I don't like particularly, uh, which is like it's like ironic. I've got the screen and I, in the book I say this about both of them. I don't like this. So it's return on equity that I use. And return on equity obviously is this number which is completely skewed by debt. You can have you can look great in terms of return on equity because you're you know borrowed to the hilt, and that's like definitely not what you want from a quality company. Um, but the return on equity numbers that you can get from databases tend to be fairly robust. And that was like when when I was going uh, originally making that screen, and I was looking at the um, other return on capital numbers, um, I just wasn't confident in
0: the consistency of um and the way the, the database calculates doing. it. You mean, like, is that what you mean? Yeah, like, just, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 kind of and between companies and just what was going in. You know, I was making my own own numbers and they were different. And it's just you know I, I just couldn't. And I've you know these screens I think have been through three different databases in terms of um they've been run on three different databases because um, the place I work for changed its um, information provider, like, you know, periodically. But um, <clears throat> return on equity was just the cleanest number and so I balance it with a test for gearing essentially in that in that screen and um and then just you know it's the the other question with quality is consistency because obviously you know you get these situations where cyclicals can look like quality companies based on the numbers and um often um you know in my experience you see private investors being lured into, you know, the house builder or whatever it is, because they're going through a really good patch and they've got really great numbers for everything, you know, quality numbers. And actually it's just, you know, and they're cheap. Of course they're cheap because, you know, the people who know these companies know it's not going to last. So, um, yeah, consistency, looking for consistency is key. And I mean, actually interesting, this is um, a screen that I made a fairly substantial change to, I suppose, in about, Uh, I think it was about 2015, 2016, because um, originally when I started doing these screens, we were coming out of the great financial crisis and I had a um, a value criteria based on the PEG ratio, which, um, you know, if if you've got quality and you've got a low PEG ratio, you know, you should be in a really good um, position. combined, yeah, yeah. That's gross worth paying for, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, and if you've got a low peg ratio, people aren't paying up for the growth. But um, around I think it started in 2014, and um, at the I started to notice uh, there were lower quality names in there, and and then I let it run for a couple of years, and then it's just I've just this okay, this is you know this shouldn't be a value screen. You shouldn't you know quality shouldn't be cheap. And you know the fact that this worked for how many years was you know that reflected the market we had I then. I gotcha, yeah. You know, you have got to we've got to just you know adapt it, and um, and so I just took took away any kind of screen for value, and the stocks were a lot more expensive, but especially because of where we were in the in markets at that time, the screen you know the performance just you know went brilliantly. Yeah. From there, which yeah. was um. So um and because pe- and people are paying you know almost anything for quality for <laughs> but like, I think but I think you make Bang the point the book that,
0: that uh, for quality companies over the long term if you go back and say man this stock looks expensive now boy I wish I owned you know whatever you know some company generating 35% returns like how but if you go back 10 years it, it really didn't matter what you paid for it if you should have just bought it like for those really exclusive high quality companies yeah I mean,
1: yeah, uh, yeah if, you, if you kind of go backwards and look at yeah what you could have paid for really high quality names yes you can pay amazing amounts and still it make still money over money. the long term that was a great it doesn't study. mean you won't it doesn't yeah. mean you won't yeah get really broken yeah on, on, on you know on, on the way through and i think i think we've just experienced a <laughs> time like that you know quality got so popular and when i um you know started writing the book you know the the num- you know the numbers in the book are amazing and i'd say if you know if we were to do ten years um to today, the numbers would you know would be far worse because quality, you know, just, you know, was it at Zenith probably. I, I got around it. Around the time when I was starting to write the book. I mean other 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 approaches, you know, like VADI, yeah, we're still having a very hard time. So um okay. but yeah, it's just that's the way of markets, I guess.
0: So last question on quality, the behavioral one. Why does it work? And I you just pointed out that it's changed over time, but <clears throat> over the very long haul, um why does the quality factor where why are these opportunities periodically available from a behavioral perspective
1: so um what what i what I turned to to explain this was uh, my um professor han, han hans Roland's uh, work I hope I've pronounced his name yeah. right. he was um this physicist and data you know visualization pioneer who was obsessed with the fact that you know the world keeps on getting better and better. But we act like it's getting worse and worse. Yes. And he had he had this great thing called the straight line, you know, the term called, you know, our straight line instinct that we see progress as a straight line. And of course, you know, with compounding, it's this amazing upward sloping curve. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's very hard to appreciate the power of compounding when you know, from day to day, because nothing seems to change. You may be, you know, by the end of the process, it won't seem like it's changing either, because it's like the increments of change are so small, but because they build on top of each other, it's, you know, mind-blowingly powerful. So um, I think, yeah, we can't, um, you know, it's just something we're not built to understand. And so we're not built to value it. And we're, you know, and for good reason, we're, you know, suspicious of it because, one, you know, one of the you know worst things you can do is just you know run after hot growth stories because they all kind of say, you know, we're going to be making loads of money out of this growth, and then very few of them actually deliver. But um, you know, we can, but the fact that we just find it so hard to appreciate the power of compounding means you can have these quality stocks in front of you, which display all the characteristics you'd expect and you can just buy them and you can make money over you know over the long term.
0: Yeah, the compounding works for you the investor and I think the compounding works internally for the company. That's one of the Buffett's lessons is I want to buy these company. I don't want the dividend. I want the company that's earning a ridiculously high return on capital that has Things to do with that capital, going back to your early discussion about the capital assets, it's decision shouldn't be fixed to either dividends or stock repurchase, but more uh, upper opportunistic. So the other the other theory, I, I just, I was looking, I put on my long distance glasses to see a book on my shelf over there uh, about factor analysis. Uh, the theory on why this one exists in sometimes is that it goes to that negativity bias that um, we take those high return on capital businesses and assume it's going to revert to kind of cost of capital much faster than it does and um I, I even have a theory that the higher the return on capital the longer it's going to stay there because it's what i call you know buffett has that uh, i buy wide moat businesses line it's the measure of the moat right and and i'm again going back to the 90s i can't tell you how many times i sat across from a cfo who's bragging about this competitive advantage in You know, uh, no one has this and this proprietary that. And I'm like, yeah, but you've got a 8% return on capital. The market's telling you (laughs) just, just barely above your cost. The market is telling you you have close to a commodity product or or service over time so i almost say like i, I love that and you you do some of it the strengths we the the market analysis like Porter's five forces it's all great stuff but it, at the end of the day for a company that's been around long enough you can kind of look at their financial statements and go
1: yeah they, got, they yeah, got something
0: i don't, <laughs> <laughs> they, I don't I, i'm not in their business but they've got something um anxious to ask about um the next screen the contrarian value what's the difference between the contrarian value and just value just cheap stocks well I, why I do you think, describe it that way yeah
1: and there are two things so one is um a lot of people kind of you know have, have that line that all all investing is value investing so you know kind of quality investing as we're just talking about you know it's kind of you know the quality is being undervalued but um i i kind of think you know that's not you know the kind of cheap stuff which I that, that I'm you know interested in with this screen but also um I think a lot of the measures that we use um for you know trying to value companies as, as we we're talking about earlier it becomes slightly redundant but actually I, I was far less aware of that when I uh when I when I um kind of came up with this screen um but it but um so it's kind of almost by chance that it has avoided many of those bullets but um What I love is um, kind of earnings, uh, uh, sorry, earnings, enterprise value to sales as a measure of value, because um, uh, essentially, you know, sales are what for most businesses, they derive profits from. And if you're looking for a contrarian situation, you should expect its profits to be, you know, reduced. You should expect it to be having a hard time. So um, the contrarian value screen kind of purposefully, it looks for companies which have had decent margins. And it's not looking at capital at all. It's not looking at the balance sheet side of things, except to check that debt isn't too um, too bad. But um, it's, it's kind of you know, it's kind of it's like we've got a you know a company with sales basically. The sales look you know fairly robust, and in the past it has had um you know a level of profitability which suggests that you know it's had you know the business has been good in the past. And and then you know the idea is reversion to the mean. If it has been good in the past you know, often it'll be good, you know, good again in the future. And, and we misjudge that always as people, you know, what, what we see in front of us is how it's always going to be a lot of the time, but especially when you're, when you're seeing some, you know, company in distress, it's very hard to imagine things getting better. We fixate on the negative and the losses people have made on the stock and it just becomes completely, you know, horrible for us to even consider.
0: So, yeah, the market is extrapolating this new world order of lower margins and the analysis is, but if we get back to just what we were for, for a long, long time, you've got, a, you've got a winner. We're completely undervaluing the, the stock.
1: And I mean, also in these situations, you see like, you know, the faintest bit of good news often kind of, you know, lifts, you know, leads to a really huge revaluation.
0: Totally. Yeah. It's a shock so, that they're getting back to where they were. Yeah. I held this question. I forgot, but it's, a, it's an interesting one for the work that I've thought about. And it applies to both quality and value. Do, do you automatically take out banks or do they get taken out by the nature of your screens? Do financials even show up in your work? On, um, on these two variables, um, yeah.
1: No, no, not uh not not really. I mean, I, I'm trying to think whether I take them take them out intentionally. um Well, they're spread uh, businesses, and this it, is a
0: return on capital kind of model, so it's it doesn't. Yeah, it shouldn't even work. Yeah, I
1: mean, it should. I, I um I, I um because because it, it, um I'm uh I've I've set up different screens for um okay. you know on the same ones from where, but I mean, what what I tend to do is with financials just take them out after they emerge, you know crop up if they do crop up okay okay um, so um yeah i mean it, it, but it's yeah clearly clearly these aren't really screens that you want to have financials with i mean obviously you know if you, if you use um price to book uh you you know there are certain stocks where you know the the one in my in, in my book is um enterprise value to sales but if you if you're going for price to book then you can start to you know, look at, um, uh, you know, uh, more asset heavy companies Yeah. and, you know, and banks and you look, and you could look at, you could, you could do the same, you know, something similar to the screen in the book, but, you know, you're looking at return on equity rather than margins and think, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the analysis is, you know, slightly different, but the idea, the same idea can be applied.
0: Yeah. Makes, makes perfect sense. And we talked, so we talked about why, uh, the behavioral reasons why contrarian value works and, um, really introduced that important concept of mean reversion, which is, this is a great opportunity, this particular factor to explain what that is. And then now the third one's very different for me. This, uh, the dividend investing uh, yes. factor is, um, why does it work? We're talking about total return here, right? I think that's a, an important distinction. Yes, everything's
1: total. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, I only talk in total, well, total return unless I have to otherwise, cause it's, um, I mean, yeah, I think I've got in the book, I've got that graph that people use sometimes when they do the, index with and without dividends to make a point for dividend. But then but then you're asking, so it's, what happened to all that dividend money? Insane. They would have kept it if they didn't pay it out. It's, it's like, it's insane. I don't know why we've got price graphs uh,
0: <laughs> no, anywhere. I, I agree. <laughs> and uh, you know, I have, I have family that are, are not in the financial world, but they you know they're like, I'm sure with you, you get, you know, your in-laws and your high school buddies, you know, uh, come to you now for advice. And one of the biggest uh, things they miss is when you go into a discount brokerage screen, there, there's a box you have to check for dividend reinvestment if you want it reinvested i emphasize like if you're putting in your retirement financial planning model a 10% long term return from equities you're not getting it if you're not reinvesting those dividends i mean historically it's like 40% of return it it reinvested in something manually or just check the box and Absolutely. make sure it goes <laughs> um so why does dividend investing work and touch on which is in the in the quant world a separate factor which is fascinating obviously because of my Opposition to EMH in that whole world is that there's there's a low vol factor kind of underlying this, I think. But I'll I'll let you explain yeah. it.
1: Yeah. No. So I mean, really, this the screen kind of combines this idea of consistent dividend payments, decent yield, and um, low vol measured by the beta, and which kind of you know suggests the company's fairly defensive. You know, it's kind of, is you know far from perfect, but um, it suggests it's a you know a fairly stable company um and really i think um you know the, the the interesting work on this is um the you know very you know work from the 70s again you know it's kind of like a lot of the uh research I referred to in the book i i try and go back to you know those seminal bits of research and you know i i kind of think if if, if a bit of research has stood up over decades and been added to by other people then you know you probably have an idea which has some validity and, um, yeah, the idea of EMH is that, you you know, you get um, rewarded for the risk you take. And in in uh, in EMH, uh, the, you know, risk is beta, so it's volatility. Right. And people, you know, people question whether that's, you know, right or not. You know, shouldn't it be, you know, risk of, you know, loss of capital. of capital? Yeah. But, um, I mean, I, I kind of actually, you know, I kind of was sympathetic to that. But then I kind of took a more behavioral view on it, and it's actually – are you most likely to lose capital it's when something's volatile and you make the wrong decision because you're panicking so are the two that different kind of thing and anyway you know you could argue to you know till the cows come home about that but um so yeah so it's it's quite curious and there's um there's a um a a dutch investor come academic come investor who's done a lot of research into combining low volatility with dividends and his works like um he works for uh, a firm called And his work's very interesting, I think, on this. But um, really, when when I was kind of trying to dig into it more, basically so much of, um, you know, what this approach is about is just about conservative um, management of companies. Because the thing we're talking about with, um, you know, growth and growth having to, you know, generate an acceptable return, what you find, I think, looking at markets, is that most companies are prepared to invest in growth when it doesn't make it an acceptable growth return. for growth's sake. Growth. yes. Yeah. Yep and so really this isn't you're not screening for a positive (laughs) you're kind of screening for not a negative in in many ways so if you have um and 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 like another another thing which would seem to reinforce that idea is that um it's often family companies who um come up as companies which kind of you know fit these characteristics of low volatility and good dividend record and you in those family companies um there's there's a um Index, which used to be done by Credit Suisse, I don't know if it will still be done following the takeover, but it's the family um, company index, which has really great outperformance over, um, you know, I I don't know how many years they've done it for, but it's come back, you know, a significant number of years, these family owned companies, which I think they define as over 30% family owned, um, I could be wrong about that. Um, Family-owned companies outperformed, and it's just because they're looking out for the next generation, and they're conservative in the way they approach things. So, um, uh, yeah. So this, um, this, this, uh, this idea that you know investors are rewarded for taking risk, going back to that EMH idea, it, it proves you know not to be true. It's it's reverse. Like less volatile companies tend to perform better over time. And the really unvolatile ones come kind of convert a bit worse than the ones which are a bit more volatile, but it's kind of you know the, it's an inverse relationship to the one predicted by mH and what it seems to be telling us i think um especially with this work done on dividends couple you know coupling the two together, is that you know conservatism works you know you want management who just you know they don't take on too much debt, they don't take too much risk with the investment they make don't make they big mistakes. The, the, yeah. Yeah. Is that, yeah. It's a long term, multi-generational profit um, project. And also it's um, this kind of virtue, I think, is under-recognized because, you know, you're dealing with a type of quality which won't necessarily show up in those kind of like really big returns on capital. Because it's, you know, it's based around stability and doing, you know, doing well enough and, you know, returning, returning cash and, you know, just investing sensibly. And that's the way you create your quality, which is kind of like um, far more qualitative than, um, you know, uh, just, you know, having a business which has really great asset turn or really high margins or right. something. Right. So, um, you know, for me, for me, it's kind of like, you know, these companies are really underappreciated. You know, you can buy them, you know, the fact, the, you know, dividend yield being in there, it's kind of like partly... In order to try and get exposure to this stock at a you know a good value. I mean, dividend yield, I, I I would dispute that it's a real value metric, but in in this case, it's serving as a proxy for one. Understood. Um and uh and yeah, the results are they're you know they're really quite lovely. I'd say, John. Yeah, <laughs> they are. <laughs> it
0: doesn't
1: it doesn't get beaten up too much during the tough times. It, really, it doesn't outperform too much during the good times though. That's I, all but, right I, Oh yeah, over over the big sweep, it come kind of like does really you know real nice. <laughs> and and,
0: and uh, I know a lot of people who read books skip the appendices, and this is one where I highly recommend almost going to the back and starting with those because you'll have buy in right away, and then then go back uh, and start from the beginning. The the fourth factor, which is the toughest one for me to understand, is momentum. And there's a, a, a his name escapes me. I think the CEO of Adventus who who spun out of DFA factor fund, uh, firm. <clears throat> I listened to an interview of, of his on a podcast and, and it was interesting. He said, he talked about all the factors he builds funds around and momentum is not one of them. He says, I see it. I know it works. I don't, under, <laughs> I, I can't explain it. I think you do a, a great job because again, like everything, okay. it comes back to behavior, but you know, you, you, you tell the listeners, why does momentum work?
1: Well, I mean, it's, yeah, it, it comes, it feels wrong. First, I, I think, you know, I, I can always appreciate why it feels wrong to anyone because it's like you're buying something which has gone up. It's like, surely I've missed the boat. <laughs> right. And and then often also you're buying something, you know, you can get these big whipsaws in it, which is, it's kind of like huge drawback. Um, and, you know, my, the, the screen I have tries to get around that a bit, but it can't get around it. It's, you know, you, you have whipsaws and momentum, but, um, yeah, no, I think you know the the way I kind of understand momentum is that it's kind of this strange stuff that goes on when people make these big collective decisions, which is what's happening in the market. And I think you know, going back to EMH, there's this idea, you know, that all information is in the in in the price, and it has to be like that because you've got loads of really smart people all looking at the same stocks and making decisions. And we know there's this thing called the wisdom of crowd crowds. And that's, you know, really powerful and you normally get the best decision when lots of, you know, when when a diverse group is making lots of decisions independently, you know, the average is normally optimal. But um, in markets, obviously, you know, the decisions aren't independent because we all have price information and that is, you know, the, the information from the wisdom of the crowd. Uh, so it's like, so actually now we're now we're into something quite interesting because if we're saying, you know, these um, judgments need to be made independently, um, they're not independent. Like everyone knows what everyone else is doing because they can see the stock price move. So, um, you know, people start come, you know, jumping on to, you know, what other people are doing, and you know, stocks start to move, you know, kind of irrationally it can be, or sometimes it can be, you know, there's something really happening. And people are, you know, all waking up to it together. You know, they're using the price movement to get onto it. Um, so, you know, you just have you have this really powerful and incredibly inf- influential um, uh, phenomenon, uh, which is momentum. And, it's, and you know, and the, there's so much evidence, you know, it, it kind of works. But the, the other thing um I've you know I, I couple this phenomenon of price momentum with this kind of earnings momentum but through revisions to broker forecasts and um, I mean I think you know there's an amazing study by David Dreman, which um, kind of got extended by a German firm I think called Star Capital just into how wrong brokers tend to be with their forecasts I think it's um is you know they, they the, the studies come back they're 30% wrong in terms of where they start the year at with where the actual earnings come out with, at the end of the year. But the really interesting thing for the momentum investor is you get these trends in forecast upgrades and downgrades. So they're you know you know analysts I have the greatest respect for and they do like you know the hardest job out there. They, you know, come predicting things which can't be predicted, basically, but they come giving the most intelligent guide they can at, the ta- at a time. But that means, you know, you have to be rooted in fact in order to, you know, and you, you don't want to get too far away from the crowd. Otherwise, you're going to lose your job or, you know, if you know, if, if what you're speculating on doesn't happen, you're going to be ridiculed. But um, there are these trends which develop in kind of, you know, company performance, they can be external or internal. And you just get these incredible, um, you know, upgrade stories, moves, which just yeah. persist and persist. Yeah. And the other amazing thing is that the market does tend to be anchored. I mean, because these are like, you know, very worthy, you know, forecasts being made, the market does tend to be anchored to them a lot, a lot of the time. I mean, you can get this situation where if it isn't an upgrade, the stock falls because it, they've become so entrenched, but, um, you know stock prices move in you know in 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 sync with them uh with with these upgrades so if you combine this idea of um price momentum and earnings momentum you get something which is you know extremely powerful i think um and slightly i mean i you know i don't i say this with trepidation because i've got no evidence for it really and um definitely there were there was a big drawdown in over the 10 years i um monitor my momentum screen, but it should, you know, in theory, offset some of the volatility of momentum because you've got something kind of of fundamental substance going on as well as the price of momentum that um, is powering those those shares upwards.
0: Well, I, I love it. This has been brilliant, Algie. Tell me uh, before we go, um, what else should I have asked that you want that I failed to ask that you want listeners to understand? About the book, and then and then finish with because you mentioned there's been a job change since you started this project. Where everybody can find you and follow you.
1: Oh yeah, no, great. Um, yes. So um, you know what I I think I I think I suppose um, the one thing I would say um, you've given me lots of time to speak, John. So thank you very much. I think I've probably (laughs) probably said too much for most most people. (laughs) But um, I I guess the you know at at its heart the kind of you know one of the ideas behind the books is that you know. Investing is one of those things which is simple but not easy, and um, the you know the explanations in the book and the kind of practical element of it are designed to make everything simpler and to make people better investors. So that's like you know really was my ambition in writing the book. And then um, yeah, so and then what what I'm doing now um, I'm I'm the investment editor um, of um, something called Citywire Elite Companies, which again is a kind of this kind of blend of quantitative and qualitative because um, what what we've done and we kind of we we recently launched the project um, properly earlier this year we've um, identified all the best fund managers in the world we've measured the conviction they show they show towards every stock in their portfolio. And then we've aggregated all the information so that we um, can rank stocks by the conviction of the world's best investors. So um, we, we've kind of Citywire is a company which produces ratings, so we can rate stocks now. The top 10% in our universe um, get you know Treble A, the next 20% get Double A, etc. And um, it's yeah, I mean it's just a really interesting project because it links that idea of um, you know the human you know, the human factor behind it. And, uh, you know, but it's come using a kind of quantitative overlay. And and also there's come quite a lot of academic evidence that um, by focusing on high conviction positions of fund managers, you know, there's a whole thing about fund managers basically, you know, can't beat the market. But the weird thing is when people have looked inside the portfolios at the most high conviction positions, those do seem to beat the market. And actually everything else gets undone with this, you know, with you know, with the rest, with the kind of like you know, far more lightweight bets that they have. So um, anyway, so yeah, so that's what I'm doing now, and I and and then I'm I'm applying these screens to that universe, which is a really interesting thing. So we're getting these kind of you know, my hope is that we start with um, we we we, we start with a universe of stocks which you know, uh, in a better position than you know any other stocks out there. And then we screen them to get kind of the really interesting situations within that as well.
0: Further narrow yeah. it down. Uh, it's, it's brilliant. And uh, I can't thank you enough for your time today. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. And uh, I will include links in the notes to the pod when it comes out to uh, where you're at, where people can follow you and what you're doing, and especially where to buy this, uh, this book. So thank you, sir, and best thank- of luck.
1: Thanks so much. Thank you.